0: Hi, and welcome back to this Book of Mormon podcast. This is going to be a discussion about chapter 2 of 1 Nephi. 1 Nephi chapter 2. Here we go. Aren't you just glad to be back? Yes. Verse 1, For behold, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto my father, yea, even in a dream, and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Lehi, because of the things which thou hast done, and because thou hast been faithful, and declared unto this people the things which I commanded thee. Behold, they seek to take away thy life. And it came to pass that the Lord commanded my father, even in a dream, that he should take his family and depart into the wilderness. When they went out, they weren't intending to cross the sea or anything like that. They thought they would be living in the desert the rest of their lives. That's by Hugh Nibley. Verse 3, And it came to pass that he was obedient unto the word of the Lord. Wherefore, he did as the Lord commanded him. And it came to pass that he departed into the wilderness, and he left his house and the land of his inheritance and his gold and his silver and his precious things. Brother Nibley said there is no indication that Lehi, Sariah, or Nephi had any problem leaving the riches of the world behind. That a wealthy citizen of Jerusalem should leave the land of his inheritance at a moment's notice and with no more substantial incitement than a dream may seem at first blush highly improbable, to say the least. Yet Lehi had brooded long and anxiously over the fate of Jerusalem, praying with all his heart in behalf of his people. And when the dream came, he was prepared. The concept of leaving home and riches did, did bother Laman and Lemuel, as recorded in verse 11. Uh, my question to you, though, is did, he, did Nephi was Nephi bothered about leaving Jerusalem as well? and we'll look and see maybe there's something in the scriptures that mentions something about that. Hmm, maybe. Continuing verse 4, and took nothing with him save it were his family and provisions and tents and departed into the wilderness. Now when it says he took nothing with him, let's uh, discuss this a little bit more. They must have had animals and beasts of burden, they would have to carry they would have to carry tents. They would have to have implements, they would have to have supplies to survive for eight years, weapons, and all the rest. You don't carry those things in your hands, you have to carry them on beasts of burden. Moreover, when the burden, when the brethren ran away, they escaped from Laban's police. He said they pursued us, but they couldn't overtake us. Well, they weren't going on foot, because we know that the police of Jerusalem had good fleet-footed Arab horses. The word wilderness also seems to be used in the Book of Mormon to refer to an uninhabited area, or at least an area only sparsely settled. Thus, wilderness could either refer to a desert area, as it does seem to do in 1 Nephi 2 verse 4, or to a fertile area, but one that is relatively uninhabited, as is mentioned in 1 Nephi 18 and other places. That was by Brother Ludlow. Verse 5, And he came down by the borders near the shore of the Red Sea, and he traveled in the wilderness in the borders. It mentions borders twice in this verse. That should be capitalized because that's what that area has been called, the Jabal, which means the borders. Joseph Smith didn't know that, neither did Oliver Cowdery, so they left it uncapitalized. But that area in which they went was the Jabal. Jabal is the range of mountains that separates one country from another. that's by Hugh Nibley. Continuing verse 5, which are nearer the Red Sea, and he did travel in the wilderness with his family, which consisted of my mother, Sariah, and my elder brothers who were Laman, Lemuel, and Sam. Just a little trivia here about the meanings of the words here. Sariah, the wife of Lehi, uh, the name is derived from the Babylonian Saratu, which in the city of Ur, where Abraham lived, was the title of a goddess, the consort of the moon god. In the language of Abraham, Sarah too mean, or became Sarai. Later, when the Lord made a covenant with the patriarch and changed his name from Abram to Abraham, his wife's name was changed from Sarai to Sarah. This name means princess. In the Book of Mormon form, in the in the name of the name of, is somewhat different. I venture the suggestion that Saraiah is an abbreviation of Saraya, and that means princess of the Lord Jehovah. Uh, the name Lemuel. The second son of Lehi, probably named after Lemuel mentioned in Proverbs 31, who is supposed to be Solomon, the king. Uh, The name means either Godward or God is bright. Sam, the third son of Lehi, the name is Egyptian. It was the distinctive name of one of the highest orders of the priesthood. The great Ramses himself belonged to the order of Sam. Uh, Laman, the first son of Lehi, his name does not appear anywhere in the Bible. Obviously, it is very similar to the biblical name of Laban, but its meaning is unclear. Hugh Nibley said, the the only example of the name of Laman to be found anywhere in the writer's knowledge is is its attribution to an ancient mukam or sacred place in Palestine. Most of these mukams are of unknown, and many of them of prehistoric date. In Israel, only the tribe of Manasseh built them. It is a striking coincidence that Condor saw in the name Lemun, L-E-I-M-U-N, as he renders it, the vowels must be supplied by guesswork, a possible corruption of the name Lemuel, thus bringing these two names, so closely associated in the Book of Mormon, into the most intimate relationship, and that in the one instance in which the name of Laman appears. Nibley goes on to explain that Laman and Lemuel were Arabic names, and that Nephi and Sam were Egyptian names. Now, you know, verse six, and it came to pass that when he had traveled three days in the wilderness, he pitched his tent in a valley by the side of a river of water. Again, notice this term river of water. That's a Hebrew expression. Uh, we certainly don't use it don't talk of rivers that way. Although the term river of water probably seemed foreign to Joseph Smith, the use of the term in the Book of Mormon is consistent with both modern and ancient Hebrew and with other Semitic languages of the Middle East. Different words are used in the languages to differentiate between one, a riverbed that was what that has water flowing in it, and two, a dry riverbed. This is one of many examples that prove the Book of Mormon is translation literature. It was not written by Joseph Smith. Rather, it was translated by him from ancient records. That was by Daniel Ludlow. Um, D. Kelly Ogden says, "How, How would they find a river of water in the desert at that time? On camel, the normal rate is 30 miles a day, but you can make 30 to 60 miles a day. Under pressure, you could make 100 miles a day. Camels move right along. This was this was winter time when there was running water. If they pitched their tents in a wadi near a flowing stream, it may well be something about what time. It may tell us something about what time of the year it was. Perhaps the spring time of of winter runoff. Uh, If it's not when water runs freely, it would have been a river of sand. If they had left Jerusalem during the Passover season, they may not have been as as conspicuous with a lot of other travelers coming and going at the time. This would also account for the prediction that Jesus would be born 600 years after Lehi left Jerusalem, which was during Passover. Verse 7, and it came to pass that he built an altar of stones. Again, here's another Hebrew expression. Lehi built an altar of stones to make an offering and give thanks. It was an altar of unhewn stones, as stipulated in Exodus 20. The wording is intentional, again showing the Book of Mormon to be translated from an ancient Semitic record. It was not a stone altar, which might also allow for cut or fitted stones, but an altar of stones. That was by Brother Ogden. Continuing verse 7, and made an offering unto the Lord and gave thanks unto the Lord our God. Lehi held the Melchizedek priesthood to be able to perform sacrificial ordinances. The Aaronic priesthood was the province of the tribe of Lehi of Levi and thus was not taken by the Nephites to America. It would appear, therefore, that the sacrifices performed by the Lehite colony were carried out under the direction of the higher priesthood, which comprehends all the duties and authorities of the lesser." And that was by Millet McConkie. Verse 8, And it came to pass that he called the name of the river Laman, and it emptied into the Red Sea and the valley was in the borders near the mouth thereof. Notice the name of the river is Laman and the the name of the valley is Lemuel. In the background of Joseph Smith it was customary for the river and the valley through which the river flowed to carry the same name. Hence the Mississippi River and the Mississippi Valley, the Missouri River and the Missouri Valley. However, this is not necessarily the practice in the Middle East. And it evidently was not the practice there 600 years BC, as it is indicated by the fact that Lehi named the river after his son, Laman, and the valley through which the river flowed after his son, Lemuel. That was by Lebo. Verse 9, And when my father saw, again, we're talking about translated material here, aren't we? We're not talking about something Joseph made up. And when my father saw that the waters of the river emptied into the fountain of the Red Sea, he spake unto Laman, saying, O, that thou mightest be like unto this river, continually running into the fountain of all righteousness. And he spake unto Lemuel, also spake unto Lemuel, O, that thou mightest be like unto this valley, firm and steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of God. Now, notice the, the phrase here that he uses about the valley, firm and steadfast and immovable. We don't think of valleys this way. We think more of mountains that way. As if to prove that no Westerner could possibly have dreamed up Nephi's account, we are challenged by the remarkable expression, like unto this valley, firm and steadfast and immovable. Who west of Suez would ever think of such an image? At the very least, the proofreader should have caught such a howler which should certainly have been corrected in subsequent editions, for we, of course know all about everlasting hills and immovable mountains, the moving of which is the best-known illustration of the infinite power of faith. But whoever heard of a steadfast valley? The Arabs, to be sure. For them, the valley, and not the mountain, is the symbol of permanence. It is not the mountain of refuge to which they flee, but the valley of refuge. The great depressions that run for hundreds of miles across the Arabian Peninsula pass, for the most part, through plains devoid of mountains. It is in these ancient riverbeds alone that water, vegetation, and animal life are to be found, when all else is desolation. They alone offer men and animals escape from their enemies and deliverance from death by hunger and thirst. The qualities of firmness and steadfastness of reliable protection, refreshment, and sure refuge when all else fails, which other nations attribute naturally to mountains, the Arabs attribute to valleys. And that was by Hugh Nibley. Again, this is translated material not made up by Joseph Smith. I seem to have said that a few times now, haven't I? Verse 11, Now this he spake because of the stiff neckedness of Laman and Lemuel. For behold, they did murmur in many things against their father because he was a visionary man and had led them out of the land of Jerusalem to leave the land of their inheritance and their gold and their silver and their precious things to perish in the wilderness. And this they said he had done because of the foolish imaginations of his heart. And thus, Laman and Lamuel, being the eldest, did murmur against their father, and they did murmur because they knew not the dealings of of that God who, who had created them. Neither did they believe that Jerusalem, that great city, could be destroyed, in spite of all other invasions. Jerusalem had never been destroyed. This time it would be. According to the words of the prophets, and they were like unto the Jews who were at Jerusalem, who sought to take away the life of my father. Brother Ludlow says, the term Jew is used in the Book of Mormon with two possible meanings. One, a descendant of Judah, the son of Jacob, or perhaps in a more general vein, a member of the house of Israel. And two, a citizen of the kingdom of Judah of this particular period. Lehi and his descendants are definitely not descendants of Judah, but they might be considered Jews in the sense that they were citizens of the kingdom of Judah. Thus Nephi states, I have charity for the Jews. I say Jew because I mean them from whence I came. Also, the Lord refers to the Lamanites as of our day as a remnant of the Jews. 14. And it came to pass that my father did speak unto them in the valley of Lemuel, with power being filled with the Spirit, until their frames did shake before him, and he did confound them, that they durst not utter against him, wherefore they did as he commanded them. And my father dwelt in a tent. Now we often joke about this verse being the shortest one in the Book of Mormon. When I was bishop, I used to have uh, the primary kids come to the office to get candy and they had to either recite from memory uh, scripture or a article of faith and this verse happened to be the one that they would often quote to get their candy. Uh, this is the shortest verse in the Book of Mormon. It may seem to carry little meaning. However, Hugh Nibley writes, the, the editors of the Book of Mormon have given a whole verse to Nephi's iconic or laconic statement, and my father dwelt in a tent, and rightly so, since Nephi himself finds the fact very significant and refers constantly to his father's tent as the center of his universe. To an Arab, my father dwelt in a tent says everything. The present inhabitants of Palestine, writes Canaan, like their forefathers are of two classes, dwellers in villages and cities, and the Bedouin tent dwellers. As the life and habits of the one class differ from those of the other, so do their houses differ. Houses and villages are built of durable material. On the other hand, Bedouin dwellings, tents are are more fitted for nomadic lives. So with the announcement that his father dwelt in a tent, Nephi serves notice that he had assumed the desert way of life, as perforce he must. For his journey, any Easterner would appreciate the significance and importance of the statement, which to us seems almost trivial. If Nephi seems to think of his father's tent as the hub of everything, he is simply expressing the view of any normal Bedouin to whom the tent of the Sheik is the sheet anchor of existence. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, being exceedingly young, we think that Nephi was probably around 16 years old or so, nevertheless being large in stature and also having great desires to know of the mysteries of God, wherefore I did cry unto the Lord, and behold, he did visit me and did soften my heart that I did believe all the words which he had spoken which had been spoken by my father, wherefore I did not rebel against him like unto my brothers. Nobody liked the idea of leaving Jerusalem. Nephi liked it just as little as the others. After he prayed and cried unto the Lord, the Lord visited him and softened his heart so he would go along with his father. Nephi had to be convinced too. So everybody had to be sold on this trip in the first place, including Nephi and Sam. That was by Hugh Nibley. So even Nephi wasn't uh, totally excited about leaving Jerusalem either. But the difference between him and his brothers is that he asked the Lord for a confirmation that this was the right thing to do, and received it. Verse 17, And I spake unto Sam, making known unto him the things which the Lord had manifested unto me by his Holy Spirit. And it came to pass that he believed in my words. But behold, Laman and Lemuel would not hearken unto my words, and being grieved because of the hardness of their hearts, I cried unto the Lord for them. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Blessed art thou, Nephi, because of thy faith. For thou hast sought me diligently with lowliness of heart. And inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper, and shall be led to a land of promise. Yea, even a land which I have prepared for you, yea, a land which is choice above all other lands. And inasmuch as thy brethren shall rebel against thee, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And inasmuch as thou shalt keep my commandments, thou shalt be made a ruler and a teacher over thy brethren. This is going to be the the problem throughout the rest of the Book of Mormon. The great political question among the Book of Mormon peoples was, who has the right to rule? Did Nephi's descendants and those who followed them have a a legitimate right to rule? Or should the right have belonged to Lehi's oldest son, Laman, and his descendants? This quarrel is the cause of centuries of political and military struggle. But this was not the only problem. Even within Nephite society, an endless number of dissenters challenged the government. They often split away to join the Lamanites when they could not win control inside the Nephite system. These dissenters typically argued for the Lamanite view in part because they thought they could line their own nests that way. By paying close attention to how this struggle was waged, we can see one of the reasons the Book of Mormon was written. Of course it is written as a witness for Christ and his teachings, but in addition it provides reasons why we should believe that the tradition of the Nephites was just and correct. The, true me- the two messages of the Book of Mormon are tied together in such a way that that whoever accepts the teachings of Christ accepts that Nephi was a legitimate ruler and vice versa. Every group of people wants to be assured that its government is lawful and was founded properly. That is in part why stories of national origins and city foundings have been so important to human societies. The stories explain the origins of their laws and their rulers. Such traditions often deal with conflicting versions of the founding, explaining away all but one authorized account. Nephi undertook late in his life to write an account of his people on the small plates. Though we don't know what the large plates the political history contained, we can guess from his version of how his people originated that a major issue was who had the right to govern. His small plates defend the Nephite tradition and refute the account advanced by the Lamanites and dissenters. Nephi carefully constructed what he wrote to convince his own and later generations that the Lord had selected him over his older brothers to be Lehi's successor. Thus, one interesting way to read the account is as a political tract produced to show that his rule was authoritative. We would not expect to find that kind, this kind of political argument in Nephi's writings if they were only a journal of what happened to Nephi and his family. Nephi's entries on the small plates were not written as the events happened. Instead, he wrote years after the events, drawing on the journals or notes that he had kept, plus the record of his father. Furthermore, all of it seem—all of it was seen through his memory and mature reflections. What we tend to read as a story of flight from Jerusalem is really a carefully designed account explaining to his successors why their religious faith in Christ and their political tradition, the kingship of Nephi, were both true and legitimate. Nephi intertwined the argument for Christ with evidence that his own authority as ruler was divinely given. They stand or fall together. Nephi, like Lehi, saw and heard Christ, and he testified that the Savior would come among Lehi's progeny. Furthermore, Christ had spoken to Nephi, appointing him a ruler and teacher over over his brothers, while delivering him from their treachery. Without Christ, the argument for Nephi's authority had no basis, and without Nephi's authority, the Nephite political claims would have collapsed in the face of layman's seniority in the family. And that was by Noel B. Reynolds. Verse 23, For behold, in that day that they shall rebel against me, I will curse them, even with a sore curse, and they shall have no power over thy seed, except they shall rebel against me also. And if it so be that they rebel against me, they shall be a scourge unto thy seed, to stir them up in the ways of remembrance. Now Hugh Nibley said, one thing the reader of the Book of Mormon is never allowed to forget is that the Nephites lived in a polarized world in which they were perpetually engaged either in hot or cold wars with the Lamanites. Their basic problem was one of survival, security was an obsession with them. The Nephites had by all human standards ample cause for alarm, yet from the beginning they received full assurance that God had purposely arranged things that way and that they had absolutely nothing to fear as long as they behaved themselves. God intended that the Nephites should have hostile Lamanites breathing down their necks, so it was a blessing to the Nephites, after all, to have the Lamanites on their doorstep to stir them up to remembrance. Happy is the man whom God correcteth. No matter how wicked and ferocious and depraved the Lamanites might be, and they were that, no matter how much they outnumbered the Nephites, darkly closing in on all sides, no matter how insidiously they spied and intrigued and infiltrated and hatched their diabolical plots and breathed their bloody threats and pushed their formidable preparations for all-out war, they were not the Nephite problem. They were merely kept there to remind the Nephites of their real problem which was to walk uprightly before the Lord. Nephi chapter 2 verses 20 to 24 is the theme of the Book of Mormon. This is the rule for the promised land. Obey God or be swept off. Now it's by Hugh Nibley. I bear testimony to the truth of these things, that this is translated material and that we are uh, reading an account here of, uh, of things that happened to the Nephites. I bear testimony that Joseph is a prophet of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time.